On a stormy night on the small island of Guernsey, a young paranormal expert joins a sceptical history teacher to record the first in a series of podcasts based on the island's incredible folklore and paranormal history. As the expert regales his horrifying stories, the teacher learns that we all have our own truth, our own story, ghosts that haunt us. Starring Olivier-nominated actor and former Blue Peter legend, Peter Duncan, When Darkness Falls is a spine-chilling ghost story that delivers a twisted, terrifying and thrilling tale that The Guardian said will leave you cowering in your seat. Catch the brand new UK tour of When Darkness Falls from September 15th in a town near you. Select Nights will also feature myself delivering a live episode of Unexplained. For more details or to book tickets, Visit whendarknessfalls.co.uk if you dare. You're listening to Unexplained, Season 6, Episode 22, To Mourn Names, Part 2 of 3. Nineteen months back, while working the sugar boats in Port Adelaide, Brian Joseph Dietmar had got acquainted with a man called Jack Thomas McLean, though, as he said, with the way things were in the docks those days, he wouldn't put much stock by that name. Dietmar knew McLean as a man who could handle himself and suspected that he may have got himself in a few scrapes throughout the years. The following day... Dietmar is at the morgue, watching as the sheet is pulled back from the dead man's face. Dietmar instantly confirms the body as that of Jack McLean, before curiously correcting his previous statement, saying now that it had in fact been four years since he'd last seen him, not one and a half. Nonetheless, armed with a possible ID, Detective Lean's team contact the New South Wales Central Investigative Bureau in Sydney to see if they have any record of a Thomas McLean. Dietmar had suggested contacting them, believing McLean might already be in their files due to a previous arrest. The team are overjoyed when a positive hit comes back. Only, as Dietmar had suspected, his name isn't Jack McLean, but William Edward Price. What's more, despite Dietmar's positive ID, this Jack McLean, stroke William Price, is confirmed to have had brown eyes instead of grey and measured only 5 foot 6 in height. Detective Lean's team are back to square one. Over the next few weeks, a steady stream of friends and family of missing people call into the Adelaide detective's office suggesting possible identities for the now, once again, unknown man, with many travelling up to the West Terrace Cemetery to view the body. A mother from St Kilda is looking for her 34-year-old son, who's been missing for some time. Another searches for hers, who'd only disappeared six weeks previously. Both will inspect the body, but leave the morgue with desperate hope renewed that somewhere out there still, their boys are alive. 
The owner of a local hotel suggests it might be a guest that had left recently without paying. When the police trace his family, they discover they haven't seen him in months, but his description doesn't fit, and he is soon scratched from the list. A woman from Salisbury hasn't seen her husband in almost two years. A chain smoker, in the habit of cutting the labels out of his clothes, in a way similar to those found on the deceased. One man, a former inmate at Alice Springs Jail, thinks it could be a fellow former inmate who'd arrived on a boat from Bulgaria back in 1945. Many make appointments to visit the body, but don't show up. Others make positive IDs, only to later retract their statements, while most fail to recognize the body at all. One by one, the leads are chased up, but all of them come to nothing. With hope of a swift resolution to the case receding, it's decided to have the body embalmed. On December 10th, 1948, at the morgue, local funeral director Laurie Elliott wheels his brand new turn a porty boy next to the autopsy table before filling its large cylindrical glass with a formalin embalming fluid. Together with the assistance of Constable Sutherland, he removes the corpse from the refrigeration unit and places it onto the table. After massaging the body to warm it up a little, with great care, he makes two arterial incisions with a scalpel and places a cannula into each of the marks. One connected via rubber tubing back to the machine, and the other connected to separate tubing that is left to dangle above the drain at the foot of the table. Satisfied the cannulas are locked in place, Laurie flicks a switch on the porty boy, and it whirs loudly into action. The two men watch as blackened blood pulled slowly from the right of the dead man, begins to snake its way through the tubing, while from the machine, a clear liquid is steadily creeping toward the insert in the left side of the body. As the blood begins to drip out onto the floor and down the drain, the formalin finally eases into the body. Within three weeks, Most leading newspapers in the country have published pictures of the dead man, while in Adelaide, all boarding houses and hotels have been scoured for any useful information, but all to no avail. The following day, the case files are dispatched to every English-speaking country in the world as the Adelaide Central Investigative Bureau look to widen the net. And on December 22nd, Dr Cowan the deputy government analyst, delivers his chemical report to the detective's office. He's found no obvious evidence of poisoning, which is deeply troubling for Detective Lean. Ordinarily, any of the more commonly used poisons in suicide cases, at least those which Cohen tested for, would have left a clear trace in the body. That there is nothing suggests that if a poison had been used, it would have been something far more rare and difficult to get hold of, 
than anything anyone looking to commit suicide would utilise. Cohen hastens to add that it may merely prove that there had been no poison involved, that the man's demise was one of simple heart failure after all, but Lean isn't convinced. How on earth does a man, as powerfully built as he was with that strong heart, just collapse? Even more strange, if it had been a simple heart attack, why didn't he appear to have struggled or writhed? And why doesn't anybody know who he is? Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. It can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when faced with a challenge in life, but when you learn how to find your own solutions, there's no better feeling. A therapist can help you become a better problem-solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional online therapy, and financial aid is available. Just fill out a brief survey and get matched with a therapist today. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com unexplained10 today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com unexplained10. As many in the nation prepare to celebrate the holiday season, the police are no closer to uncovering the man's identity. But at the turn of 1949, a promising lead emerges. On Sunday, January 2nd, a smartly dressed woman walks into a police station in Morgan, a small town located on the bank of the River Murray, about 160 kilometers northeast of Adelaide. She approaches the front desk, clutching a copy of that day's Sunday Mail, with its picture of the unidentified man printed on the front page, along with a small black-and-white photograph. The woman introduces herself as Elizabeth Thompson and, holding out the front cover of the mail, points to the picture of the unknown man, whom she identifies as her friend, Robert Walsh, also known as Nugget. Her photograph shows the two of them together years before. Back in Adelaide, Detective Harvey receives a message from an anonymous caller who, having too seen the male's picture that morning, identifies the man as someone he'd once worked with, also called Nugget. A few days later, on her way to identify the body, Elizabeth calls in on Stanley Salotti in Port Adelaide. Salotti had one time been Robert Walsh's employer when Walsh was lodging at Elizabeth's house. When Elizabeth shows Salotti the paper and an old picture of him and Walsh together, he's also convinced that the dead man is their mutual acquaintance and agrees to accompany Elizabeth to the morgue. Having both formally identified the body as Robert Walsh, a.k.a. Nugget, Salotti and Elizabeth are taken back to Anger Street to be interviewed by Constable Harry Storch. Elizabeth, who is a widow, 
explains that she'd met Walsh, who would have been 64 that year, eight or nine years ago, when he first arrived in Adelaide looking for lodgings. He claimed to have come originally from Wales in the UK, where his one remaining relative still lived, an estranged sister he'd long since fallen out with. Clutching her photo of Walsh a little tighter, Thompson explained that he'd left her home just over a year ago, before Christmas 1947, to visit Brisbane, hoping that she might later come out to visit him. But she'd never gone. It was the last time she'd seen him alive. Stanley Salotti, who described Walsh as quiet and well-liked, had last seen him at the Victoria Park racecourse 18 months previously, adding that he suspected Walsh to be something of a gambling man. The following day, Jack Hannum, a storeman working in Port Adelaide, turned up at the city detective's office, identifying the unknown man as someone he'd met at the Morfittville racecourse back in May 1947. Although Hannum too said the man's nickname was Nugget, curiously, he'd first introduced himself to Hannum as Bob Morgan, not Robert Walsh. In early February the following year, Jack had bumped into him again by chance at Adelaide Railway Station. The man was in need of accommodation and Hannum had helped him move into the boarding house that he was staying at, a place called Turner's. Morgan stroke Walsh stayed there for the next couple of months, in which time he and Hannum became good friends. At some point, Morgan let slip that his name was in fact Robert Walsh, and sometimes even called himself Nugget McCarthy. In hindsight, it was a little peculiar, Jack admitted, but at the time he just thought it funny. As Constable Storch listened, patiently taking notes, Jack went on to describe Nugget as roughly being in his late 40s and 5 foot 8 in height, with a tattoo on his right forearm. Did you say a tattoo? says Storch suddenly. Yes, says Jack. It was a faint outline of Australia, I think. We all deal with Sunday scaries, right? Sunday scaries are those, oh no, stressful, nervous, can't sleep, dreadful feelings that hit you on a Sunday evening when you think about the impending doom of work tomorrow, or school, or frankly just life. Unfortunately, you can feel that same pit in your stomach any day of the week. Sunday Scary's CBD gummies were made to defeat the crap life throws at us. These are the perfect CBD gummies for professionals on the grind, super mums and dads, students, party animals, regretful drunk texters, and everyone in between. 2022 is all about self-love and taking better care of yourself. So whether you need to take the edge off, calm your racing mind, sleep better, or just chill, Sunday Scaries CBD gummies are the answer. Look, we all have the right to live scare-free, so let me help with my 25% discount. Visit sundayscaries.com and use my promo code UNEXPLAINED for your discount. That's promo code UNEXPLAINED for 25% off at sundayscaries.com. Later that afternoon, Storch accompanies Jack to the morgue 
who identifies the body as the man he knew as Bob Morgan. However, when Storch looks again at the dead man's forearm, he finds no evidence of the tattoo. The next day, Constable Boyce from Minlayton Station contacts the Adelaide CIB to inform them of a call he'd just received from another man, identifying the deceased as Robert Walsh, adding that Walsh had wanted all his property to go to Elizabeth Thompson in the event that anything should happen to him. Then another message came in, this time from a different caller, confirming the exact same thing. The department decide eventually not to pursue this line of inquiry, perhaps because it was starting to sound suspiciously like a scam. Back on the 2nd of January, shortly after Elizabeth Thompson had first made herself known, an entirely separate lead was about to come to light. Again, in response to seeing the picture of the deceased in the Sunday Mail, a man had pitched up at the Adelaide Detective's Office with a different name for the police to pursue, Ray Clark. This man went on to describe Clark as being late 30s, 5 foot 10 with reddish hair and complexion, and having several teeth missing. The man knew Clark to have been something of a boxer in his youth, and he was still in good shape the last time he saw him all perfectly in keeping with the profile of the dead man. However, it wasn't until he was asked how he'd known this Ray Clark that the detectives really sat up and took notice. We worked together for the Commonwealth Department of Parks and Interior, he tells them, down at Woomera. Woomera, repeats a junior officer with some confusion. But Detective Lean knows exactly what Woomera is. On July 18, 1945, unbeknownst to most of the planet, a bomb was detonated at 0548 local time in the middle of the Jornado del Muerto desert in New Mexico. The device, named Trinity, marked the first successful deployment of the atomic bomb. Less than three weeks later, the Atomic Age announced itself in two mushroom clouds of death and destruction when Little Boy and the Fat Man were detonated above the Japanese towns of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The bombs would go a significant way to ushering an end to the Second World War, but they would also mark the beginning of a seemingly endless arms race that to this day continues to haunt every militant aspect of foreign diplomacy. After the war, or more specifically, after the detonation of the bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it was clear to all governments who considered themselves major world players that the game had shifted. Although the United Kingdom could provide the expertise to compete in the development of nuclear weapons, what they didn't have was the space to test them out. The word Woomera, taken from the indigenous Darug language, translates to English loosely as a wooden spear-throwing device, the perfect name, you might say, for a nuclear-grade 
rocket testing facility. Developed as a joint venture between the governments of Australia and Great Britain, the Woomera site, located roughly over 500 kilometres to the northeast of Adelaide, in a wide expanse of South Australian outback, covered an area of roughly 120,000 square kilometres. What went on at Woomera was top secret, and Ray Clark had helped to build it. The suggestion that this Ray Clark, a potential murder victim with uncertain origins, had worked on such a top secret facility is deeply concerning for Detective Lean. Later that afternoon, PC Horsnell escorts Ray Clark's former colleague to the morgue where he makes a positive identification of the dead body. The following day, the Adelaide advertiser names Clark as a possible candidate for the unknown man. Later that evening, another man who claims to have worked with Clark is also taken to the morgue where he states that the body is not him. A few days later, a letter arrives from one of the lead surveyors on the construction of Woomera, who confirms that the likeness and description of the unknown man does indeed resemble the Ray Clark he knew. He adds intriguingly that Clark used a different name on his Royal Australian Air Force driving license, but he isn't able to remember what it was. Despite their best efforts, Detective Lean's team are unable to determine Clark's whereabouts, but crucially, nor can they find enough information to identify him as the unknown man. After six long weeks of fruitless investigations, the Adelaide police, now boosted by the addition of the smart and amiable Detective Len Brown, reconvene to go back over the evidence there must be something they've missed, some clue that they haven't pursued yet, thinks Lean, as they pick through the dead man's belongings. Then he sees it. The train ticket. He bolts to the phone and immediately has Adelaide train station on the line. The luggage, he says urgently down the receiver. Check the luggage department for any unclaimed suitcases that were checked in before December the 1st. In fact, that goes for every left luggage department, he says to his startled team. Soon, they're on the line to every boarding house or local transport depot they can think of, urging them to check for any items that might have belonged to the dead man. A similar appeal is run in the advertiser the next day. And finally, on January 14th, a vital breakthrough. Are you missing out on your favourite show because it's not available in your region, trying to keep your private time private? Well, let me introduce you to NordVPN. If you're bored of US Netflix, why not take it for a spin in the UK? Using NordVPN and a click of a button, you can do just that. No need to travel to Japan for your favourite anime when NordVPN brings it right to you. With 5,000 plus server options, no show is out of your reach. Using my link, nordvpn.com forward slash unexplained you can receive a huge discount on a two-year plan plus one month free nordvpn keeps your information encrypted so you never have to worry about your ip or location getting out and don't forget 
There's literally no risk to you with their 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll issue a refund, and you can pretend the entire situation never even happened. Check out my link, nordvpn.com forward slash unexplained, to get your subscription started today. It was checked in sometime on November 30th, between 11 and 12 p.m., explains senior porter Harold North, as he leads Detective Lean into the back of the Adelaide Station cloakroom. Sadly for Lean, Harold has no recollection of who he took the bag from, but it's the only one checked in before December that hasn't been picked up yet, he says. Harold negotiates his way through the mountain of luggage and coats crammed into the small back room until finally he finds it. Lean takes the medium-sized brown leather case from Harold's hand and places it on the ground. He notes a destination sticker has recently been removed but finds no other markings. Flicking up the clasps, he pauses for a moment before lifting the lid. Inside, he finds a stack of neatly folded clothes along with several implements whose purpose he's not yet able to discern. As he slowly pulls out a shirt and pair of brown trousers, almost identical to the ones found on the unknown man, Lean knows whose suitcase this is. He digs frantically for any sign of documentation, but there is nothing. Back at the station, the team make a proper assessment of the contents, A small card of brown cotton and some buttons appear to match with thread and buttons found on the trousers of the deceased. They also find a red checkered dressing gown, some slippers, brown leather shoes, a tie, shaving gear, a jacket and handkerchief that also matches with one found on the man. Curiously again, they find all the labels have been removed from the clothes with three of the items bearing the name Keen, although Detective Lean suspects there is nothing to be gleaned from this. As for the implements, they find a small electrician's screwdriver, a stenciling brush, a pair of scissors, and a table knife that's been cut into a smaller and sharper instrument and covered in tape to keep it so. Detective Lean learns subsequently The items are commonly used for stenciling, and after speaking with a tailor, he discovers that the jacket in the suitcase was most likely made in America. Unfortunately, any hope that this presented a new avenue of inquiry had been dashed a few days earlier by a letter sent from the US Department of Justice informing the team that the prints they'd sent them had failed to show up on the FBI's database. In fact, All international police departments contacted by Detective Lean's team had got back to them with the same news. There was no record of the unknown man. Despite the initial excitement at locating the suitcase, with no documentation being found inside, they have little more to go on. And by April, the man is still nameless. At some point, it's recommended to Detective Lean 
that he turned to the University of Adelaide for help, Professor John Cleland, a well-respected and experienced authority on the science of pathology, jumps at the opportunity to offer his assistance in any way he can. The following day, Cleland takes receipt of the case notes, as well as the suitcase and its items found at the train station. Reading the details of the autopsy, it's clear to the 70-year-old Cleland that the man had not died of natural causes, confirming Detective Lean's suspicions. Finding blades of barley grass in both the lower part of the trousers left in the suitcase and in one of the socks worn by the deceased when he was found, Cleland is able to confirm that the suitcase and its enclosed items belonged to the unknown man, but it adds little to what they already know. Going back to the clothes, he runs an infrared light over the trimmed labels, but finds nothing of interest. Then he looks again at the trousers that the man had been wearing when he was found. Made by Wilson, according to the little tag on one of the pockets, which he flips inside out to reveal a maker's mark chalked inside. The police had made inquiries about this early in the case, leading them to a manufacturer based out of Brunswick Street in Melbourne, which produced over 3,000 pairs of similar trousers each week. In other words, it would be nigh on impossible to trace the name of the buyer. Cleland is despondent and close to giving in when, working his fingers around the inside of the waistband, he feels a little bump in the fabric next to the opening of a tiny fob pocket. Putting his finger inside it, he finds a small, tightly rolled piece of paper. Careful not to rip it, he unfurls the piece, which has clearly been torn from somewhere, and is stunned to find two words of a language unknown to him printed on the inside of it in thick, black, stylized font, reading cryptically, Tamam Should. You've been listening to Unexplained, Season 6, Episode 22, To Mourn Names, Part 2 of 3. The third and final part will be released next week, on Friday, September 23rd. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help support us, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplainedpod to sign up. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com, or Twitter at unexplainedpod, and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast. podcast.